Good morning. I'd like to join me in the book of James. <clears throat> James starts out his book talking about trials. We said last week trials can be small things like stubbing your toe. Trials can be a big thing like a serious illness or the loss of a loved one. Some of the most difficult trials are trials that other people cause in your life because there's a real tendency to want to blame that person and not see that as something from the Lord. Sometimes they're caused by other people. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. Sometimes you cause them yourself. Heard about a lady who called her husband on the phone. He was driving home from work. She said, I just wanted to warn you. Came on the news and they said, there's one guy going the wrong way on the interstate. He said, one guy, they're all doing it. James says, when you experience trials, you are to rejoice because trials have a purpose. Trials produce character. Pressures produce quality. Difficulties produce maturity. And if you look around, you see that principle everywhere. It's the rocks in the brook that produce the song. It's the fire in the furnace that produces hardened steel. The pressure down in the earth's elements creates the costly diamond. The crushed flower produces perfume. Trials produce quality. An oyster lives inside a shell, minding his own business, doing whatever oysters do. And then suddenly, he has a trial. An irritant, often a little grain of sand or a parasite, penetrates his shell. Now he's got an irritant inside the shell with him. And when that occurs, all the resources within the tiny, sensitive oyster rush to that spot and begin to release healing fluids that otherwise would have remained dormant. It's called knackery, it covers the inside of his shell. And it begins to come to that irritant, that piece of sand, and begins to put layer after layer, after layer of knackery on that piece of sand. And pretty soon over time, the wound is healed by a pearl. It's a symbol of stress. Conceived through irritation, born of adversity, nursed by adjustments, pearls are the product of pain. If there was no wounding, no intrusion, no interruption, there would be no pearl. 
Some oysters never get wounded. They end up in stew. They end up on the half shell. They end up in my gumbo. Those that suffer the pain of adversity end up as gems. So it shouldn't surprise us that in Revelation 21, 21, it tells us when we enter our eternal home, when we enter that new Jerusalem, when we enter that heavenly city, we're going to enter through gates of pearl. The Bible says through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And we will be living in a city whose gates are pearl as an eternal reminder that the pressures are part of the process that brings us to maturity. That pain produces quality. That difficulties are used to make us a gem. That God uses trials in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. And that's just what James is telling us in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it this way. When all kinds of trials crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they have come to test your endurance. So let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find that you have become men and women of mature character. Trials have a purpose. God allows them to penetrate the shell of your life to produce a pearl. And so when they come, and they will come, we are to welcome them. And James gives us three reasons why in the first few verses. We began to look at them last time. The first is that problems improve your faith. James says in verse 3 that when you fall into various trials, it is to test your faith. Now, God's not testing you to find out if you've got faith. He knows. He's not sitting up in heaven saying, I hope they don't flunk. You see, the trials don't simply prove you have faith. The trials are designed to approve your faith and, in fact, improve your faith. The word testing is a Greek word, dokimos, that means approved. When a potter made a pot, he would shape the pot, put it in the oven, put it in for just the right amount of time at just the right heat to make it the strongest it could be. And then he took it out and he stamped on the bottom, Dakamas, approved through the fire. Well, guess what? Trials are God's oven. Trials are God's fire. He puts you in the, in the oven at just the right temperature, just the right amount of trials for just the right amount of time to make you the strongest you can be to make you the most useful you can be. 
we love popcorn around my house. Some of you don't even know how to make popcorn. You've got these air poppers and you buy them at the store. You don't know that to make popcorn, you've got to put the oil in the bottom of the pan and get it hot and throw the popcorn in, put the lid on and shake it. That's the way you make popcorn. It's not healthy, but it's good. You ever try to eat a kernel of corn? Not good. It's what keeps Dennis in business. A kernel of corn is not useful for anybody until it goes into the hot oil. You and I, as believers, are not useful for God until we go into the hot oil. And what is the hot oil in God's economy? It's the trials. It's the difficulties. It's the pains of life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter uses that analogy of, of purifying gold as illustrating our faith. And when somebody found some gold, it was usually not just pure gold. It was gold in with other metals and rocks and so forth. And so he would put that clump in a crucible and he would put it over the fire and gold would always melt and gold is heavy and so gold would go to the bottom and all the rocks and all the other minerals would stay on top and he would scrape that off. Heat it up, the gold goes to the bottom, the dross comes to the top and he would scrape off the dross. And as a result of the gold going in the fire, the gold became more pure. That's the way God tests us. He doesn't test us simply to find out if we have faith. Not simply to prove our faith, but to improve our faith. To make it more pure. Secondly, problems build your endurance. He says in verse 3, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance comes from two Greek words that means to remain under Trials produce the ability to remain under, to hang in there, to be steadfast, to be strong, not to bail out. I need to clarify that last week when I talked about the unnamed trainer on staff, I wasn't talking about Ryan Korn. I was talking about Andy. Andy's my trainer. I often say to Andy, it hurts. I'm sore. And he says, remain under the weights. Hang in there. Keep going. Do another set. Because if you will hang in there and if you will endure, this is part of the process of physical development. I was talking to Andy this week. He said a lot of people, when they lift weights, like to use dumbbells. Because if you're doing bench presses and you have dumbbells and you have too much weight, you can just throw them away. You can just bail out on them. Guess what? God doesn't give us dumbbells. God gives us the bar. And he sets it right in the middle of our chest and he keeps adding weight to the end. And he spots us and he's saying, hang in there. Stay with it. Stay under it. 
Keep pushing, keep working. Do one more set, five more reps. You can do it. What's he doing? In my case, he's doing all the lifting. I don't even realize it. But he's building endurance in us. The ability to hang in there. Guess what? You're dealing with a trial today. God knows two years from now, you're going to have a bigger one come your way. How are you going to get ready for that big one? You're going to stay under the smaller ones. Third purpose. Problems make you more like Jesus. Look at verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You say perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? That sounds like Jesus. Bingo. That's what he's saying. That's the goal. That we would be perfect and complete. That we would be like Jesus. That's the goal. And if you notice here, there's a domino effect. The testing of your faith produces endurance, which leads to the result of you being perfect and complete. That's the goal. That's the outcome. Now, the word perfect doesn't mean sinless, because in James chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. That's a word that's used other places in Scripture to mean mature, fully developed, full-grown. And he adds that to that the concept of complete, which means entire, all that you can be. And to reinforce that, he gives us a negative, lacking in nothing. So he is saying that the result of trials is that you will be full-grown, lacking nothing you will have the full catalog of Christian virtues. Now these words were often used in that day in the process of fruit bearing. A piece of fruit in the early stages will never be more of an apple or a banana or a peach or grapefruit than it is when it's young. But a fresh new piece of fruit has to mature has to ripen to be useful. The moment you are saved, you will never be more of a Christian than you are at that moment. But guess what? You need to mature. You need to ripen. And how does God ripen you? He puts you through the trials of life. We've got too many spiritual green bananas We've got too many spiritual babies that are too old to be wearing diapers. You see, God's goal for you is to bring you to maturity. Or as he says in Ephesians 4.13, he wants to build us up until we all attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's goal is to make you like Jesus and he will never be satisfied until you get there. Now, please don't miss this. The product is to be like Jesus. Not like your neighbor, 
like Jesus. The product is to be like Jesus, and the process is what? Trials. That's the process he uses. A lot of Christians are really naive about this. We, we glibly pray, Lord, make me more like Jesus. And then he starts to do it, and we complain. Why? Because the only way you're going to become like Jesus is for him to put you over the flame. I think we're all guilty of loving the product and hating the process. I want to get there. I want to change. I want to be different. I'm tired of living like this. I want to be more like Jesus. We don't like the process because the process is painful and difficult. But that's the only way he's going to get you there. Heard about a young pastor who came to Harry Ironside and said, I've got a problem. I've got a bad temper. I keep losing my cool. I'm not honoring the Lord. What should I do? Mr. Ironside said, well, let's pray about it. So they knelt down to pray, and Ironside said, Lord, overwhelm this brother with problems. Send him all kinds of difficulties. Rain down trouble on his life. Young pastor interrupted him in the prayer and said, Mr. Ironside, I don't think you understand. You see, I said I need patience. And Ironside said, I understand, because Paul said, tribulation worketh patience. See, Jesus is not interested in simply giving you a life insurance policy to keep you out of hell. He wants to make you just like himself. And the process he uses to accomplish that is trials. The goldsmith that I mentioned earlier would put the gold with all its impurities in the the crucible, put it over the flame, and he would scrape off the dross that was lighter as it came to the top and the gold sank to the bottom. You know how the goldsmith knew that the gold was pure? You know when he was satisfied? He kept scraping dross until he could see his reflection in the gold. What a great picture of God working in your life. He puts you over the heat, puts you over the flame. The impurities come out. Have you ever noticed when you have trials, the impurities come out? They rise to the top. There they are, ugly as they are. God scrapes them off and scrapes them off and scrapes them off. And when is he satisfied? When he sees his reflection in your life. When he sees his image reflected in you. You say, all right, I get it that God has a purpose in problems. What am I supposed to do when they come? How do I handle trials? How do I welcome trials into my life? Well, James tells us in verses 2 to 4, there are three exhortations here. One has to do with our attitude, one has to do with our mind, and one has to do with our will. Notice what they are. They're very simple. First one is you need a joyful attitude. He says in verse 2, consider it all joy. 
Now think about the last trial you had. How did you handle it? Typically, we complain, bicker, whine, cry, blame, seek revenge, curse, throw things. James says what? Rejoice when you have those trials. Now how do you do that? Well, I think he gives us a hint right here in the exhortation. Because if you notice, he doesn't say, feel it all joy. I don't know about you, but trials don't feel good. Pain is not fun. He doesn't say, feel it joy. He says, consider it joy or count it joy. In fact, the Greek term there is an accounting term that means to calculate. Sometimes trials don't add up. Have you noticed that? I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm doing the best I can. I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm trying to share the gospel, and i got these problems in my life. It doesn't add up. That's why we're always asking why. Why is this happening to me? Why did that happen to her? doesn't add up. God says you need a different adding machine. Stop adding it with your adding machine and start adding it up with God's adding machine because God's adding machine has an eternal perspective. We add up trials and and we add them up oftentimes in light of our own convenience, in light of our own comfort. We say, this doesn't make sense to me because the, the... The bottom line for me is I want to be happy and comfortable and rich. And God says, use my adding machine. Because my adding machine will show you the eternal differences this is going to make. My adding machine will calculate in the fact that I am working in your life today to make you more like Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, did Jesus enjoy the cross? No. Was the cross fun? No. In fact, Jesus prayed the night before, if there's any way, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go to the cross. It wasn't fun, but for the joy set before him, He endured the cross. The cross was not fun. The cross was not what he rejoiced in. What he rejoiced in was the outcome of the cross. He rejoiced in Sunday morning, not Friday afternoon. He rejoiced in the resurrection, not the crucifixion. Paul had an ongoing trial in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He calls it a thorn in his flesh doesn't tell us what it is, but that's very vivid. When you get a thorn in your flesh, what do you want to do? Get that thing out of there. Get get it out. That's what Paul did. He said, Lord, get it out. Three times he asked the Lord to pull it out, and the Lord said, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And how did he respond? He says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He rejoiced. 
perfect example of this is a woman in labor. You don't want to get too close to them. They will kill you. They are experiencing pain. But it's amazing. It's a pain that's mingled with joy. Because they know that that pain is going to be the avenue by which they give birth to a little baby boy or a little baby girl. You see, they look at that situation and they go into it with joy because they are anticipating what God's going to do. When trials come into our life, we can rejoice because we can calculate those things, factoring in what God is doing, factoring in where God is taking us, factoring in that my life doesn't end at the tomb. It goes on into eternity, and God is doing something in my life. So how do I have a joyful attitude? I need to get a new calculator. And I need to calculate those trials and add them up in light of what God is doing, not just in light of what I want to have happen in my comfortable little shell. Second thing deals with the mind. We're to have an understanding mind. Notice the first word in verse 3. It's knowing. You'll never be able to rejoice in trials until you know. You have to understand that they're productive. You have to understand that they are God's tool that he's using in your life. You have to understand that God is using that as the oven to make you the best you can be. You have to know. You can rejoice because you know. And to simply put it, here's what you need to know. You need to know that God is far more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort. Why do we complain in trials? Because our bottom line is comfort. I just want to be comfortable. Just leave me alone. Let me stay in my shell. I'm fine here. God penetrates the shell. Why? Wants to produce a pearl. He's got greater goals for you than you have for yourself. You'll never rejoice unless you know He's all about your character, not so much about your comfort, because that's temporary. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you a familiar verse to you, probably. It's a verse we quote often when trials come into our life. It's Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Hear people quote that verse all the time. Something goes wrong in your life? Well, God is working all things together for good. Now the problem is, we oftentimes don't know how to define good. Because we define good from our perspective. So we think, well, God's working all things together for good. And what I consider to be good is when I'm healthy, when I have riches, status, fame, 
comfort, convenience, that's good. And what we overlook is the fact that God has a different definition for good. What is God's definition of good? You see it in the very next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, notice, to become conformed to the image of his Son. What is God's highest good for you? Is that you would be conformed to the image of his Son. In fact, I would suggest you draw a circle around that phrase and around the word good and draw a line in between because they're synonyms. God's good for you is that you be like Jesus. So when you're evaluating things, realize God is working all things together and that all things includes trials and difficulties in your life. Why? Because he is shaping you and changing you into the image of his son. The people that I know that I would classify as people of great faith are people who have learned to handle life in the furnace. And they realize that when troubles come into their life, they don't come as enemies. They come as friends. They don't come as weapons. They come as tools in the hand of God. And when you know that, you'll be able to rejoice. Third, exhortation has to do with your will, and that is a surrendered will. Notice the little word in verse 4, let. L-E-T. Let those trials have their perfect result in you. When I was uh, a boy, I was... uh, playing with a friend out at their farm, and I, we were, I shouldn't tell stories on myself, I'm going to get in trouble, but I, we were, we were uh, riding cows. <clears throat> and cows don't like to be ridden. So, so I got bucked off the cow, and then the cow came after me, and I was running from the cow, and so I dove over a fence, which turned out to be a barbed wire fence, and uh, cut a big gash in my leg. And so they took me to the doctor, and back then, in prehistoric times, they didn't have a lot of, you know, painkillers and that kind of thing. So I I just go to the doctor, and he just says, you know, bite on this nail. And and, uh, he starts to sew me up. Now he said, be still. And let me do my work, because if you wiggle and shake and everything else, you're going to make this worse than it is. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Just be still. You know, that's what God does in our life. He says, I'm going to put the needle in here, and it's going to be pain. You're going to feel some pain, but this is for your good. I want you to just be still. Cooperate with me. Let me do my work. What happens when trials come? We squirm and we wiggle and we look for an escape and we try to get out of it. And God's saying, be still. Trust me. Let me do what I'm doing in your life. 
for most of us, there's a big step between the knowing of verse 3 and the letting of verse 4, isn't there? I know God's at work in my life, but when the trial comes, I'm not so good at letting him do his work. I'm not so good at staying under that trial. I'm not so good at letting him accomplish what he's going to accomplish. We have sort of an ejection seat mentality. Whenever there's turbulence in our life, we want to just pull the cord and fly off into space. Lord, get me out of here. Bring the rapture today. And God is saying, let me work in your life. Be still. You know, when you go out for sports, you go out for the basketball team, and you always go out with those dreams in your mind that I'm going to make that last-second shot at the buzzer. Go out for the football team, you have those dreams in your mind. I'm going to catch that winning pass at the end of the game. Go in with a lot of dreams. You get to practice and you find out the coach has no idea about those dreams. Because you get to practice and what does he do? I want you to run five miles. Then when you get back, I want you to do some push-ups and then we're going to run the stairs. Then we're going to do some sprints. And you're doing all this stuff and you're thinking, what is, what is he doing? You know, I, I should be practicing my Victor Cruz dance. You know, he, he should be teaching me some salsa moves. He should be showing me how to cut down the net at the end of the game after the victory. What is he doing? And some people drop out because they don't see the correlation between the pain and the glory to come. They drop out because they don't trust that the coach knows what he's doing. And others stick with it and they run, and they do what the coach asked them to do because they trust the coach. When I played basketball in college, I would go to practice, and I was a skinny guy and, and uh, couldn't jump. So the, but I had a good, sh- sweet jump shot. Uh, so the coach would put a vest on me at practice. Green, put the vest on. It's like a 10-pound vest. Well, you ever try to shoot with somebody on your back? It's kind of like it was. I was just, it just was terrible. So I'm running around in the scrimmages at practice with this huge vest on, just lugging along and so forth. But you know what? I found from wearing the vest in practice that when I went to the game and didn't have the vest anymore, I jumped higher, had more energy. The coach knew what he was doing. You see, James is saying, When trials come into your life, and it's painful, realize that the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows that that pain is leading to glory. Let me tell you something today. There is no such thing as an accident in your life if you're a Christian. There is no such thing as an accident. Nothing will ever happen in your life that will surprise God. He's not going to go, oh, you lost your job. I didn't see that coming. 
In fact, not only is he not surprised by those things, he actually allows those trials to come into your life because he wants to make you more and more and more like Jesus. You know why the coach put the vest on me and not the other players? Because he expected more out of me. If you're getting more trials, it's a compliment. God is saying, I'm expecting more out of you. I'm anticipating more from you. It's a compliment. So when they come, consider them all joy. Know that they are for your eternal benefit. And cooperate with God. Let him do his work. I read this week that it's estimated that out of three tons of oysters, only about three produce a perfectly formed pearl. And that's because some never get wounded, and some who get wounded never complete the process. So how about you? Will you rejoice in your wound knowing that God is making you more like Jesus? And will you surrender to his work in you? Do you need some motivation? It's the cross. We're going to close our service by taking communion, the bread and the cup, reminding us of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Look at the cross. Looks like the worst tragedy that could ever happen. But in light of the resurrection, it was God's great gift to you and me. It's a perfect example. We follow the Lord Jesus, and if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus, we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. That's painful. That's difficult. That's costly. So this morning, as we've been challenged in the area of trials by James, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who gave his all for you and me. There is no greater motivation. I'm going to give thanks for the bread and the cup and give you an opportunity to prepare your hearts and to come to the various tables there when your heart is ready and participate. If you're not part of this fellowship, you're welcome. This is the Lord's Supper. It's not ours. He invites you. If you're a believer, your heart is right with him. Come and remember the Lord with us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't already done. And when you ask us to rejoice in trials and go through trials because you have a purpose, we look at the Lord Jesus and realize we could never measure up to the trials he went through. We have it easy in comparison. Lord, help us to understand that pain is part of your process and to cooperate with that. And as we think about the cross today, we realize from a human perspective it's a tragedy. From your perspective, it's the greatest victory in the universe. And so, Lord, as we take the bread and cup today, we remember our Lord Jesus who gave us all for, his all for us. And Lord, pray that it might not only cause us to be thankful 
but it might cause us to be more surrendered to work in our lives. Lord, we welcome the difficulties, the trials, the disappointments, the pain, because we know that you work all things together for good, which is to be more like your son, and that's our desire, and that's our prayer. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' worthy name, amen. Thank you.